Hello everyone, this is Dottie Laster with Trafficked, produced and broadcast by Zeus Radio Network for Hear Women Talk. Thank you for tuning in to Trafficked every Thursday where we discuss human trafficking, which is modern slavery, that occurs both around the world and locally in the United States. Each week we highlight the good work of guests who focus their efforts around the world and in your neighborhoods. Today we have Robin, uh, our first guest is Logan Clark with Clark International Investigations. He's going to speak about his uh, observations as he lived in Thailand and some of the really interesting cases he's worked on as well as upcoming movie projects he's involved in. Then our second guest in the second half hour is Robin Sachs, legal analyst for CNN, Larry King, Fox News. You may have seen her even last night on Entertainment Tonight, and we're going to talk about how to get a case to prosecutors in the United States. But first, I want to start with a a rant. Last week, I raved. This week, I rant. In the United States, the law says that victims of trafficking are not to be detained or incarcerated. They are to be treated as victims, not as criminals. Yet, many of the organizations that have received training and are tasked with protecting these victims, actually wind up arresting them and prosecuting them. If a victim is found in a detention, there is not a procedure to get them out. Uh, A case that we worked on, the things that kept us from getting our client released were simple things like passport photos and fingerprints. It took us nine months to get this poor woman fingerprinted. And the reason that's important is you have to submit those for her to get a T visa. So without those, she does not have access to the very thing that will set her free. Just yesterday, after nine months of coordinating a large team focused on this woman's case, we were able to get her fingerprinted. She is free and moving to- forward and getting her T visa and the freedom she deserved as a victim. She never, ever was a criminal. That's my rant for today. Go out in your community and see if you can change the world. You can take this information, take it to your local police, and say it's not right. We need to let the victims free and incarcerate the traffickers. Welcome, Logan. Hello, Dottie. Hey. Logan is a wonderful friend and colleague. He and I speak around the world. He is the uh, leader of Clark International Investigations. And uh, one of my most fun speaking partners, we have a great time when we travel together and uh, educate law enforcement about this issue. He has so much to say, I want to jump right in. Okay, Logan, hello. Hello. <laughs> Good morning. It's afternoon for you. It's, it's late morning for me. <laughs> Logan is out in the, the California area, and he, we've just been... a. Uh, enjoying the virtues of Skype and getting all connected. But what's so interesting about Logan is many things, but what we're going to talk about today is your time when you lived in Thailand and and your knowledge of, of all of that part of Asia. Well, I lived, yeah, I lived in South all of Southeast Asia for about nine years, um, in the Philippines and in Bangkok and in Hong Kong. And um, I ran into, I had a jazz club. I had a couple of jazz clubs. Um, over there in the 70s during the Vietnam War. And I stayed, you know, long afterwards. 
but it's I saw it firsthand as a young man. I was only like 20 years old when I had my first club with a couple of partners, and um, I saw the world that I, you know, I was right in the bar business. Whether you're in a jazz, legitimate jazz bar, or you know, whether you're in a, a, a hostess bar, you still are in that same world as far as seeing what's going on and the people and the owners of the clubs and stuff. And so I saw it really up close and realized what was going on. And we were special operations and just wound up getting asked to help a woman. So it's a, it's, it's, it's something that if you see it up close, you'll never forget it the rest of your life. So back in the seventies, you know, this isn't a new crime. This is actually an established old crime, uh, trafficking in women. They thought I was nuts. I mean, I was the private detective who was out of his mind. I was chicken little, and I was running around telling everybody the sky is falling. And that was literally an interpretation interpretation that a DA tagged on me, you know, and, and said, oh, chicken little again. And because they were saying this doesn't happen over here. It only happens, you know, it happens in third world countries. It's not our problem. And you're just, Logan's just stirring up you know, crap and, and, and making everybody all freaked out and nervous. And it took forever. And it's now, so funny because, you know, I'm in Houston arguing with the U.S. attorney saying there's victims here in Houston. He's going, no, no, that's just in Thailand. That doesn't happen here. And yeah. uh, he thought my, you know, he probably thought I was chicken little. He, he may have given me other names too, but, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, now he won't argue with that point. But then you're right. I mean, we, the oh, first yeah, part now, is just now, selling the idea it exists. Now I'm this investigator that was way ahead of his time. <laughs> <laughs> now you and I get asked to speak all over the place and teach the teach the law enforcement. So you yeah, go from a used, nut to being, you know, oh hey, teach us. I was like, we we used we get paid now for what we used to get shunned for before. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so it is um it's something that you get into and once you get into it and you have and 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 but when you get into it you see the devastation but if you if you have the the incredible opportunity to do something to actually help someone who is in tra- who is trafficked um and and you help get them out the feeling is the only thing I can describe it to is when I bring back someone who's kidnapped especially a kidnapped child and I bring it back to their parents um, you, you, the, the rush is so great that it's very hard. It's, it's, it's like an addiction to where you want to go back and help somebody else. You want to do it more. You just want to keep doing it because it's, it's so profoundly, you know, affects you. I agree. And, you know, oftentimes I try to tell people, come on, get involved. It's better than going to Disneyland. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, only at Disneyland you don't get shot at, honey. <laughs> well, and, you know, you don't tell them that right away. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, bring it in slowly, you know. <laughs> oh, by the way, <laughs> now that we're yeah. hungered down here on the side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I forgot to tell you. Oops. Um, well, um, do you have some specific cases um, or maybe some happy outcomes? Because, you know, what we're talking about is people forced into commercial sex held against their will through force, fraud, or psychological coercion. It's not just the old lock in a chain and, and put them in a room and put a gun to their head, but there's right. many schemes and tactics out there, and so we want our listeners to be aware of some of them. Um, yeah, can you they, talk about some of the things you saw? Yeah, um, one of the, when I 
first started getting into it um, when I was living back in the States um, was the 90, you know, 89, 90, 91. And um, I, there was a girl who, a tall, beautiful girl who was, uh, she had just turned 18 years old and uh, she wanted to be a model. And uh, certainly she was beautiful enough to, and she had saw some ads. And she went to an ad, you know, answered an ad and went to this agency and it looked legitimate. You know, I mean, it really did. They had a nice office and everything. In fact, her parents were so, you know, strong on this modeling thing that they had to approve everything. And they went down, met the modeling agency people, talked to them, everything. Saw the paperwork, she signed it, and she left to go over to Dubai to do some modeling over there. And they hadn't heard from her. As soon as they contacted me, I had been going back and forth to Dubai already. I was over there um, during the, the first Gulf War, Desert Storm. And I told them, I, you know, that what was going to happen. And I knew the Russian mafia had just started moving into Dubai in 90, 91. And so we knew what was going to happen. But we were able to get there. I knew the country so well, and we had so much information on these people um, because they had such a legitimate front that they put up that we it was fortunate. And I was able to contact my people there, get over there. And we literally stole this girl right out of the brothel that was upstairs above a bar. And we got her out. I had to run her across the roofs of about three buildings and jump into a, a both of us. She wouldn't jump. Had to push her off of this, <laughs> off of this building that was two stories high into a thing that was like a hayride. It was, um, well, it was just like a hayride. It was a, 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 a cart and it had all kinds of, um, of, of hay and, and all kinds of shit in it. Anyway, it was very great that we were able to get her out. But had we not had the in exact information we had, if we would have missed her by four days, five days, she would have been so far gone and so deep into the trafficking business that it would have taken us probably six months or a year to get her out, if we could get her out. Wow. Modeling so we had it. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. You've got to be careful with modeling agencies, jobs in Japan. Happens in Japan all the time. Japan is huge on this. They, they promise you these incredible jobs, and it's done through what you think are legitimate agencies, and you're going to go over there, and you're going to be a hostess in a club. And to us, hostess in a club means that you say hello to them and give them their menu, and you take them to their seat. Okay? Only in Japan, you are the menu. Real put. Well put. So we had a quick chat-in question. Um, you know, can you tell us how prevalent this is and, and how, many, how many kids you've rescued? Oh, God. My partners and I, we have a team. Um, we, it's estimated at over 300 um, kidnapped and runaways who, who get, wind up getting into uh, trafficking. Runaways are a prime target for traffickers because no one's, you know, look, I mean, people are looking for them, but the police aren't looking for most runaways. And, and as you know, many of the cases that are 13 or 14 years old, when a girl is 13 or 14, the law enforcement immediately assumes that it's a runaway and they're not yeah. going to do anything. 
I mean, they, they and even if they're forced by law, which they are in many cases, you're forced to take a report. You're forced to do an investigation. Well, you can't. Again, we got we got to take a break. Let's oh. move forward with our break, and I want to pick that thought right back up when we return. Okay. Welcome back to Trafficked with Dottie Laster and our guest, Logan Clark. We were just talking about um, Logan's experiences as he lived in Thailand and as he was trying to get people to understand human trafficking does exist. Um, it's been in existence for a long time. And uh, we moved forward in time to where he was rescuing someone who had been uh, lured to Dubai with uh, claims of a wonderful modeling job, which turned out to be false. She was about to be forced into prostitution. And then we moved uh, back to discussing how many uh, cases there may be and, and who's the target for these crimes. Logan, let's pick up where we were talking about the runaways and how prevalent it is for them to be targeted. Um, it is very prevalent. There are so many runaways in the United States. I mean, you're talking um, in the United States, it's about a half a million a year. Now, the majority of those come back. You know, right within a short period of time, but tens of thousands of them don't. And they're approached within the, about the first 48, 72 hours. They're approached to either sell drugs, sell their body, or, you know, do something else. They're just approached to join groups, get, you know, pimps approach them, gangs approach them, everything. Um, we've worked on, I, well, I've worked on about 8,000 cases, but certainly not all human trafficking. Um, I would say that we, <coughs> excuse me, when we were in Asia, when I was living in Asia, we rescued several dozen girls uh, from clubs, but we did it with the authorities there because we were living there. We knew them and it sounds, it's hard to understand, but we were bribing the same police that the bad guys were bribing. We were bribing them simply to keep our our bar license open. As foreigners, you have to pay off people just to have a, you know, to have anything, to have a, a sandwich shop. You have to pay them. But in doing that, you get to learn who takes the bribes and who doesn't. So I knew the cops that not to go to in the trafficking. <laughs> so we would shut down entire clubs. We, we had the ability to shut a whole club down in a very short period of time because we lived there, we were locals, and it was our, literally our area. Um, we didn't keep track of it then. Now we we kind of do, and like I said earlier, it's about 300, you know, that we have saved. Um, but it's, it's, I don't know, there's just, there's so many more out there. It's, it's, it's so small in comparison to what is out there. People do not think this is a problem. It's a horrendous, horrendous problem. The United Nations said the statement, and this just came out, you know, uh, six or eight months ago. Um, the secretary said that human trafficking is at epidemic proportions in the, in the world today. Epidemic. And in the United States, it is monstrous. There are thousands and thousands of women that are trafficked in here and out of here not as many out as there are in they go after runaways because the parents are trying to look for them but they don't have the resources to look and law enforcement isn't looking for them and if they can get a runaway who's especially run away before 
um, they got a free shot. I mean, they can take that kid. That kid will be out of the country so quickly, and nobody will ever find them. And that's who they're looking for, right? It's no accident. They know where to target and focus their efforts on these kids. Absolutely. In the, in the foreign countries, they, they grab um, um, Western girls or um, that are working with the Peace Corps, and they just got out of the Peace Corps. They don't grab them when they're in the Peace Corps because then they have a real problem. <laughs> but they wait until they're out of the Peace Corps. And a lot of kids that are out, get out of the Peace Corps backpack around the world or hike or, you know, do whatever. They want to continue on for a little bit when they get out of the Peace Corps. And those are prime targets. So, you know, as soon as someone loses even a few of their social ties, they become more vulnerable, especially if they're outside the country. Absolutely. Absolutely. Outside the country, you have monstrous problems because of coordinating authorities and no one wants to no country wants to even admit that the problems in their country um thailand does cooperate now if you if you had it go about it the right way the philippines does if you go about it the right way but it's still going on there as you know and it will go on there you know forever it just depends on the level that we allow it and they allow it to go on it's like gambling you know before it was legal it would go on and and you all we can do is hope to stamp out, you know, 90, 98, if we can get as much of it as possible that, it, you know, that, that when it does happen, people go after them right away and everybody gets to know what, you know, what is going on. People are just naive. That brings us back to the case you were talking about. I mean, time really is of the essence. Uh, oh, absolutely. Do you uh, have someone go missing? Yeah, yeah, it is not like wine. It doesn't get better with age. I mean, you have <laughs> You've got to be on it so fast, so unbelievably fast. And that's why people turn to private organizations like yours, like mine, because they want somebody to do something immediately, not just make phone calls. Yeah, and as, as, as trafficking, you know, I think about murder cases, which I'm not experienced in a lot of these cases, but I work with police. And even that's an urgent thing, but the jurisdiction is established that the crime doesn't keep moving. Maybe the bad guy, you know, tries to get away, but in trafficking, it's so fluid. It's in constant change and, and movement's not required for trafficking, but in most of the cases, it's all about an organized effort to get some away from, from safety. Absolutely. And they are extremely well organized. They're better organized than the drug smugglers because they have human beings that they're smuggling who walk and talk and fall down and, and, and all kinds of, but cocaine does not talk back to you. Cocaine doesn't, you know, have to, have to pass through any of the problems that a human being does when you're trying to move them from one place to another. So they have to have an incredible system to move. And like you say, flowing, it is constantly moving. You know, what pains me is I get calls quite often and I see cases where a year later, finally trafficking is looked at and addressed. And uh, it's it's really sad to realize that it took that long to think of trafficking. And that's why you and I travel and train so much is we try to get that to be one of the first things that, that's looked at. Yep. Yep. Very true. It's like when, it's like when a child <coughs> excuse me, disappears from a house. The first thing the police do is look at the parents. 
And if they're separated, God help you, they're going to waste, you know, one or two days just looking into, okay, where is the father? Wherever they're separated, the parents are. They, they're just trained to look, they, because they say most crimes, you know, happen within the home and somebody that you know and a relative and they're using, you know, that logic that most crime, yes, yes, most do. But even if you're saying 60 or 70% of them happen within the home and let's say a hundred thousand happen, that means that there's still 30,000 people out there that, you know, that have nothing to do with home violence. Yeah. Yeah. So they're using, you know, just because it's a majority. And so they look, they, they start targeting, you know, the parents, the uncles, the nephews, before they would imagine, oh, my God, you mean this might be traffickers? That wouldn't be in our town, not in our little town. Yeah, that's in Thailand, right? <laughs> if yeah. you're in Thailand, that's in someplace else. Exactly. We've got just a few more minutes, and I wanted to wrap up. Um, you know, you and I work a lot traveling and speaking, and you have some exciting upcoming projects. In just a minute or so, tell me what you're working on now. Um, well, we've got a, a, a television series I'm working on with Pierce Brosnan, and uh, who is executive producing uh, the series. There's a movie we're working on from a case, um, which is a great, great fun movie um <laughs> called 13 angels and um we're uh trying to i'm trying with you to put together our human trafficking project there's just a lot of really good things you know that that seem to be coming along and finally people are opening up at least to this human trafficking and i think that you know a lot of i think it'll open up faster and faster as we go along faster and faster and it'll develop, and we're making a, you know, we're making a dent. Now we just got to make an explosion. <laughs> I like that. Oh, and, an explosion. And my website, and my website is ClarkInternationalInvestigations.com or LoganClark.com, and I have an E on the end of Clark. That is Logan C L A R K E dot com. Logan, <laughs> I want to thank you so much. Um, it's been a pleasure, and I know we're going to have you back. Um, we definitely are going to talk about your film and your other projects when they are available to the public. And uh, thank you again. Thank you very much. I'd love to be on anytime. Listeners, stay tuned. We're going to come back with Robin Sachs, legal analyst. You may have seen her last night on Entertainment Tonight. Welcome back, folks, to Trafficked with Dottie Laster. It's produced by Zeus Radio Network for Hear Women Talk Radio. We're joining our guest now, Robin Sachs. Robin Sachs is a former Los Angeles prosecutor. She uh, specialized in prosecuting sex crimes against children. She has written six books and has appeared on such shows as as uh, CNN, Larry King Live, Nancy Grace, The Today Show, and many others. You may have probably uh, have seen her many times. Welcome, Robin. Thank you. Well, I was just going to recap how we met some time ago. Um, I was in Los Angeles working on a film project, and we were at Celebrity Artists Association, uh, Celebrity Artists Agency. And uh, you were presenting a film called The Playground. And we hit it off then and have been in touch and 
working and stirring up trouble ever since. Uh, absolutely. That's the only way to, to roll around here. <laughs> and you, Logan, and I make up a team that we've put together called the International Human Trafficking Task Force. And uh, for the last year or so, we've really had a good time. So thank you for uh, being a part of our show and uh, for continuing on with us uh, stirring up trouble and making it hard for bad guys and safe for victims. That's right. Thank you. Are you kidding me? You're, I mean, it, it's a partnership, multidisciplinary partnership that we all have to do together, and without your expertise, I couldn't do, play my role. <laughs> well, um, let's just start off with, you know, you do amazing work. You're you're all over TV. You're writing books. Um, before that, you were putting bad guys in jail and protecting children. What got you into this? Um, how did you get started and why? Well, you know, you have to rewind the clock a bit to, to kind of go back to my childhood to figure out how and why I ended up where I did. And, and the first thing was, started at a very young age. I was one of those rebellious teenagers who um, liked to argue with my mother, particularly. And there was a time that my mom turned around to me and said, you know, you get paid for that big mouth of yours. And um, I, it kind of clicked and the light went off. And I said, you know what? Um, how? What can I do to monetize it? And um, really honed in on my arguing and debating skills as time went on. And then decided that I was going to go to law school and actually hated law school. Really hated it. It was awful. I cried pretty much every day my first year of law school until I did um, a moot court, which was sort of like a mock trial kind of thing, and it happened to be about a criminal law situation, and it was the last week of my first year of law school when I was arguing the Fourth Amendment search and seizure issue about, actually about a homeless guy's right to privacy and his cardboard box, and I was in front of a three-judge panel. It was a fake appellate court situation. And um, and the light went on. I was like, okay, if I can be informed and I can talk and do my thing and not just push paper or read books or, or memorize elements of crimes or any other laws, then I could do this. And that was when I decided that I, the only job for me was to it was practicing criminal law. And um, at that point, I really could have been either a public defender or a DA. Um, I had no kind of preference for one side versus the other. It just so happened to see that in the DA's office in Los Angeles, at, um, while you're, after you've completed your first year of law school, you can get certified as a law clerk to be able to actually try cases in court under the supervision of the DA. And they don't let, they don't let you do that for the defense part. They only let you do that for the prosecution. I figure if you let it, you know, if a, a guilty guy goes free and you lose it, then that's not as bad as having an innocent person go to jail, so that's why the public defender's office didn't do that. And in my experience at the DA's office, I realized the DAs really have the power. The DAs have the decisions, make the decisions file. They're, you know, if the case is a good case, they strong, feel strongly about it. They have the ability to shape policy along and, and do that. I mean, I personally, like, being a huge proponent for the legalization of marijuana, for example, like, those weren't cases that I really felt the need uh, to take um, trial or to, to see any sort of punishment of any kind in that. And I had the ability and discretion to make those decisions. At the same time, I strongly feel that kids and women should be protected and violent criminals should be 
punished and punished harshly, and I had the ability to go after those with perverts. So it was the perfect blood for me. Well, that's really great. And parents, that's also a lesson. I, too, do now what I used to get in trouble for doing at home. So uh, you are forming your kids' future more than you know. Um, I often laugh about, you know, getting paid now for what I used to get sent to my room for doing. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> especially if you have a rebel child, and I was, too. I, I was all about respect and justice. So, you know, um, um yeah, I, I defended my values from an early age. <laughs> well, that's, so, that's exactly what happened with me. And I also think that um, if you, especially kids who are acting out, if you put them to work in some sort of way where they can, where they can hone in those skills, like for me, one of the things that I did early on was I um, acted as a teacher a teacher's aide and also worked as, you know, did babysitting and stuff like that and took my kind of, energy and try to use it by fighting with my mother, use it for positive. Absolutely. Yeah, if you can get, um, rather than frustrated, get empowered, uh, I do believe that is one of the keys to getting a successful future. Um, you and I both have worked with children, and and sometimes I just shake my head and go, wow, you know, the adults around this kid really need to need to take a look in the mirror. Um that brings us up, you know, I've worked a lot of cases where parents are actually prostituting their children. Uh, it's not rare. Um, I wrote an article saying um, it's not rare, it's actually common. And um, um, what are your thoughts on that? You know, as a prosecutor, what would you do to a mom and her boyfriend that are prostituting maybe a 13-year-old? Well, first of all, just to t- kind of dial it back one step before even getting into the trafficking, um, and just dealing with child sexual assault generally, where a, the perpetrator may not, where it may not even be a traffic case, just a straight child molestation case, even a parental uh, molestation or intrafamilial um, situation. It's amazing how many non-supportive mothers that there are out there. I mean, there's, you know, you think that the bond of motherhood and the care for your child is so ingrained in our, in, in, a, in a mom, yet when you know, sometimes the biggest proponent for the defense can be the mother of the victim, which is unbelievable. So then if you take that and logically take that one step further, it doesn't defy reason any longer that um, mothers can find themselves actually prostituting their own children. And, you know, I think that there's this belief that to, to prostitute your own child or a parent prostituting a child means that they're putting them on the corner and taking the money. I mean, that, yes, that's very traditional one form, but really the much more common kind of prostitution of children is moms who want to get their, you know, drug fix and who are willing to sell their child for drugs, which that's trafficking, you know, as much as the, the passage of money is trafficking. Exactly. Anything exchange of value for commercial is commercial sex, and any minor in commercial sex is a victim of trafficking. Exactly, and I think that that you know, there's there's people have a narrow kind of view of what they think this is, and it's just not. Um, or even you know, oh, you know, any exchange of any good or service that has any value. I mean, if it's, if it's even for babysitting, or if it's to watch the child, or whatever, uh, it doesn't even have to be for an illegal 
purpose, or at least seem like an illegal purpose. And, um, you know, we're, we just, uh, we're going to talk about this on a future show, but there was just a case here in Texas where a 13-year-old was prosecuted for prostitution. And the Supreme Court, um, after her case took three years, but after three years, they did rule in her favor. But the point was, this is a 13-year-old mentally retarded child who was charged with prostitution. And I think often um, we still have a naive, as a society, we have a naive misunderstanding of prostitution and certainly of children and prostitution. Right. Well, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's just, again, it, it goes into more of our societal views than the legal views. But if you think about it from a legal perspective, kids can't do anything. They're presumed incompetent under the law. You don't even need to have a, um, a developmental issue. That's even more reason for, in that case, why um, the, the, the original rulings were so absurd and the original way the court the case was handled was so absurd because a 13-year-old can't rent a car, a 13-year-old can't rent a hotel room, a 13-year-old can't sign a contract, a 13-year-old cannot um, vote, a 13-year-old can't drive. There's all of these things that 13-year-olds can't do, but yet we're going to say they have the ability to consent and be uh, in a, in, in voluntarily be in a, in a profession. No, they are not. So I, how I like to refer to it is kids cannot be prostitutes. They can be prostituted, but they are not prostitutes as a, as a knowing um, profession and having the ability to be able to consent. And that's, that's absolutely critical. The, the language that we use is so important, and um, prostituted is a whole different meaning than prostitute. And uh, in my experience, that when people exchange sex for money, um, things get, and people misunderstand and they get out of whack. Um, and uh, so it's really important to have good prosecutors, such as, as you were, as you worked for the, the county there. And like you said, the prosecutor does have the power and uh, can't take the cases that are most important as, as you did. Right. I mean, and the other thing is, it's it, it's easier to just charge a kid with prostitution. You know, that's one person, one crime. It can, you know, it, it's an easy um, way for a case to be handled. But that's exactly why it needs to not be handled because of this way. Because the more complex, the more and the more victims that get re-victimized through the charging process, the less likely that this epidemic, which is truly an epidemic proportion um, will be dealt with. Um, let's move forward. Let's, uh, a lot of our listeners do work on human trafficking. They're in coalitions, uh, um, nonprofits, law enforcement agencies around the nation and the world. And can you give us just a bullet point, a few steps? How do you get a case to a prosecutor? Case to the prosecutor 101. I mean, it depends on the jurisdiction. There's two ways that cases can be filed in the country. There's one is via grand jury indictment, which is common in almost every other state but Los Angeles County. Um, Los Angeles County is a preliminary hearing jurisdiction with that. And what that means is that the cops bring the case to the DA. The DA decides what cases, what charges to file. And then the case goes to a preliminary hearing within 10 court days which would mean that the court, we don't want to uh, 
lock people up willy-nilly without any sort of probable cause, we'll have a probable cause hearing with minimal testimony that will go in front of the court to determine if there's enough evidence to move the case forward. In that's how it's done in Los Angeles. And in New York or Texas and many other grand jury states, they, instead of the case going from the DA to the right to preliminary hearing, what happens is the case goes to the DA and they then would file or, or present that case, excuse me, to the grand jury and the grand jury will make the determination what, if any, charges are filed. The biggest difference between the two is in a preliminary hearing state or county or jurisdiction, the um, defense attorney is entitled to discovery, knows about the case, and is part of the process. Grand jury hearings are secret, and the defense doesn't know about it, and so you could be having a grand jury listening to your case and studying your livelihood and not have any clue that that's going on. Okay. Um, you know, you commented on such cases. I, I don't know about your work, but since I do consulting, I get a lot of calls on missing people um, where bodies have not been found, the case is old, um, and uh, a lot of times trafficking isn't considered till much later in the case. Um, I know in the Natalie Holloway case, um, you were able to comment on it. And, you know, sure enough, we don't know what happened, but the bad guy um, or the suspected bad guy is related to human traffickers, according to his own words. Um, do you have any thoughts on missing person cases and trafficking and when that should be considered? Well, I think that it always has to be a consideration. I mean, I think that there's certain things. I mean, you know, whenever there's a missing person case, there's a, a protocol in terms of how you deal with the case. I mean, first of all, you always start an investigation with the people closest to the victim or the missing person. So, you know, in every good investigation, you're going to start looking right away to family members, people, and then you move your, and then you spread your investigation out as it, as the time goes on. And, in the, and once you get into, um, you know, as you're looking at factors, you know, if you're dealing with family members, then you're looking at motives, and then you're looking at what relationships are and, and what, you know, who's doing what, why, and why this kid on this day or this adult on this day or this person on this day went busy. And once you start to analyze that, you can't help but to consider human trafficking. I mean, it's, it's, it's as basic as, you know, looking for child pornography on the computer of a sex offender. I mean, that's just, it's just that dominant that you wouldn't even not look. It, it would be not... You know, it would be terrible investigative practice not even consider that. Yeah, and I do see a lot of these cases, um, not not all of them, but but it's it's more often not the case that trafficking is considered up front. It may come up much later. And uh, at least I always say if you considered it up front, you might have a different outcome um, or at least try to rule it out up front rather than try to pick up the trail a year later. Yeah, well, and the other thing is one of the things that I found is that by the time people think about trafficking, it's usually the missing person family members who, in their desperate search and desire to bring closure to their case or to find their loved one, end up Googling, going online, and realizing, oh, this may be something that's there that was never even mentioned to them. And part of that is because, as you, you brought it before, is the concept of language. I mean, you, the word human trafficking is just the world's worst legal 
practical, social, psychological word out there. I mean, there's this perception that in order for speech neutrality, there has to be movement from one place to another, um, that it must, there's a connotation that, you know, it must be Thailand or Cambodia or Vietnam for speech trafficking. I mean, people don't recognize that the United States is the number one consumer of traffic items and goods, and that, that, that Atlanta, Georgia, is the number one destination spot for human traffickers because you can get anywhere from Atlanta, Georgia, and the United States within two hours. So people don't recognize that the hub of trafficking is on American soil and assume that it's some issue far away and we're not going to deal with it and that it has something to do with movement and don't realize that it's really slavery or sex for money where it's against someone's will. Absolutely. And can you imagine, um, you know, we see a volume of cases because we target our efforts that way. Um, but there was a study done where one juvenile court was surveyed for a period of just over a year. They looked at back cases for about a year, and they identified 1,500 children that had trafficking indicators on their case. Those were children that were prosecuted. Um, so if one county has 1,500 over a year, can you imagine how many counties in the United States there are? Oh, God. I mean, it's, it's outrageous. And what's more outrageous is how many are unprotected and how many victims are prosecuted for prostitution more than the traffickers are. Yes, I often joke in a dark way that I spend most of my day getting victims out of jail, and that's literally what I do most days um, is get victims out of jail because that's where they are. Um, sure. Let's move forward with that because, you know, obviously we're talking about what happens more often than not is the uh, the victim gets arrested, the bad guy doesn't even get questioned, as was the case with the 13-year-old. I mentioned the 32-year-old, quote, boyfriend was not even investigated. Um, and so he never was arrested, prosecuted. You know, he just went on about, probably got another girl, went on with his day. Um, so let's just try to say what should be. So let's say someone like that 32-year-old man with good evidence that showed that he had been pimping this 13-year-old mentally retarded girl. If he's charged with pimping a pandering, you might get a few years. But if you looked at it, what it is, trafficking, then what should he get? Well, it's, I mean, each state has their own version of the trafficking laws and has their own punishment. Um, and for and the thing that's so unbelievable is that trafficking hasn't even was not even a federal crime until the year two thousand. So this is not a new has you know a long standing crime, which is part of the reason why it's not investigated and prosecuted effectively. And what ends up happening more often than not is exactly what you're saying, is that you'll you'll find that, say, that 32-year-old man gets charged if he were to have gotten charged, more often than not he would be charged for a sex crime. Like, maybe he would be charged for lead act with a minor or, or rape or something of that sort. And that, I mean, obviously that's better than nothing, but at the same point, you lose the whole feel of the case. And if I'm a prosecutor, this guy comes around another, comes up again in another jurisdiction, another place, you don't have the feel that this person is a trafficker and it doesn't tip off people who um, are looking and investing for the future. So we have the, you know, there, there's a huge reason and need to call the crimes what they are so that the perpetrator's rap sheets reflect the true aura and feeling of the crimes that they're committing. 
That's a really good point and actually one I hadn't thought of. I mean, of course, I'm always saying please charge them with the crimes they committed, you know, assault, kidnapping, battery, sexual assault, and or trafficking, you know, whatever will get this guy at least arrested as opposed to the victim. But you're right, as you start to build a profile on a criminal and you're looking for future prosecutions, if he doesn't get those charges, it's hard to know what you're really seeing right away. And um, and so that leaves the door open for them to continue. Right. And, and, that, and so once you start seeing it on rap sheet, then that helps educate other prosecutors, cops, and every, you know, judges and what have you, even if you don't end up necessarily getting a conviction on that, just the filing or at least the investigation that mentions that charge is a, a, becomes a red flag. There was a case that I wrote on um, here in San Antonio, Texas, and it demonstrates the point you're making exactly. There's a man that befriended a woman waitress at a restaurant. She had two children, ages 5 and 18 months, and he had arranged with her to sell sex acts on those children. And luckily, he sold those sex acts to an undercover FBI agent. And the reason there was an undercover agent there is because he had been identified in Los Angeles as early as 2004, but had not been charged yet. They hadn't had enough information to take him, you know, to charge him criminally. And that led to saving those two children. Absolutely. I mean, that's that. I love when you prove my point, Claudia. That's great. (laughs) That's why we're such a good team. (laughs) Um, I love I was looking at a list of your books. You have six books, um, and all very amazing and catchy titles, as well as really helpful. Um, the one I have in my hand is Predators and Child Molesters, a Sex Crimes DA's Answers to 100 Most Asked Questions. And I have to tell you, I use it as a reference quite often because I do get, um, in the divorce courts, it seems to me that I get a lot of moms who are trying to protect their children and the courts are enforcing the divorce decree. And so a lot of times they have questions off my topic and I refer them to your book because uh, that tends to happen also. You know, the courts do the best they can, but they have a snapshot of what's going on in these people's lives who are in conflict. And I really appreciate that book. Um, Thank you. The, <laughs> yes, thank you. Uh, many moms out there are thanking you, and, and uh, someday I need to compile a list because I have referred your book to many moms. Um, not that there's not dads out there that need it. I just seem to get the mom calls. <laughs> no, and, and one of the things, with, uh, you know, along the point that is that really one of the things that even as a prosecutor that I have trouble with and that prosecutors have trouble with is the sexual assault disclosures that happen during the course of a divorce. Um, many times the presumption is, oh, my God, it's a divorce case, so it must not be true. Somebody must be coaching this kid. Um, and that was my personal thought, too. I would always kind of go, oh, great, it's one of those cases. But what ended, what ended up happening or what, through my experience and kind of opening my eyes, I also realized that we need to equally consider the fact that perhaps the reason that the child is now closing is because they've been removed from one parent for some time their safety and being able to disclose, and it may not be coaching at all, 
And, you know, obviously every case needs corroboration, needs files, so you would find your corroboration if it exists or not. But there shouldn't be a presumption that any child is being truthful or untruthful. It should be the evidence should lead you to your right result. But, um, and, and one of the problems is, does occur in the family court system because of that. Exactly. And I really, um, um, you're correct. You know, we, we, even in helping them, I try to, look for other indicators around this case before I even, you know, consider consulting with them. And I do quite often find, as you said, when things change, meaning the child is out from under the control, they can finally say what's going on. You're, you're absolutely correct. And, um, you know, again, I'm working with them more informally um, and then guiding them on how they can get to court. And uh, so, yeah, it, it's really neat when we see different perspectives but we're also seeing the same experiences. Um, Also, I really liked your book, Everything I Learned About Parenting I Learned in Court. I haven't read it yet, but I love that title because, again, proving your point when I'm out uh, speaking with attorneys that do defense or other things, oftentimes we commiserate and shake our heads going, what were their parents thinking? You know, and these are adults who found their way through the court system, and now they're, they're definitely criminals. And, when you look at their history, you go, "Wow, somebody wasn't paying attention." So, um, thank yeah. you for that one too. Thank you. Um, Robin is a weekly contributor to the Huffington Post. She also has a wonderful blog, which I subscribe to, the Saxfacts blog and new newsletter. It's found on robinsax.com. It's a weekly email update of all Robin's many media appearances, publications, and activities. So I hope that our listeners will check out that site. And uh, also, if you go to Hear Women Talk Radio, click on Traffic and join the uh, social site for Traffic. You can keep up with Robin. And uh, Robin, I hope you'll join our site, too, and you can continue this discussion on with our members. I will do that. I will do that. Thank you so much. Do you have any closing thoughts or words for our listeners? Just, you know what, thank you for highlighting this issue. It's an important issue. It's a prevalent issue. And, Dottie, I applaud you for, for focusing on this issue. Well, thank you so much. And I bet we'll have you back again soon. Okay, thank you. This is Dottie Laster for Traffic and Hear Women Talk Radio on Zeus Network. Welcome back, folks. And thank you so much for tuning in today and listening to our wonderful guest, Logan Clark. And Robin Sachs. I see our chat room's been busy. We've had great discussions and uh, many people listening. I want to end, we've talked about some dark subjects, and I want to just end with a happy story and, uh, you know, something inspiring and positive that you can take forward in your day. I met about uh, in 2004 a wonderful 18 year old woman who had been trafficked, she had been around the world. She had been um, sold into prostitution by her family and uh, trafficked by a U.N. soldier. When she arrived in New York, he dumped her off between the airport plane or the plane and the uh, customs. Um, and so she was arrested. He jumped back on a plane, disappeared out into the world, and she was 16 years old, handcuffed, arrested, and pregnant. And she was never identified as a victim. I met her two years later when she was 18. And she was just down, hopeless, 
Um, and I, I couldn't argue with her. I mean, there, there was no place in the world for this beautiful, beautiful woman. And she'd already been through more things at the age of 18 than most of us would have trouble enduring in a lifetime. The baby she had been carrying actually died, and it died on her birthday. So at 18 years old, I met her just days before the second birthday since her child's death. And she was glum with no future and uh, obviously more than distraught. Well, we fast forward years of helping her, getting her service, identifying her as a victim. Um, She didn't have it easy. She had to live on the margins. She was missed over and over and over by people who should have known that she was a victim of trafficking. So five years passed, and just two weeks ago, she got word that she would be approved for a T visa. We celebrated. We have worked for years to get this. Not that she had done anything wrong, but every system that came in contact with her, customs, immigration and customs enforcement, the foster care system, and on and on and on, not only admitted her as a victim, but treated her as a criminal. Well, five years later, just recently, I just went and visited her, and we took a picture with her and her T visa. It's amazing what something that looks like your driver's license. It's a tiny little card. I joked it should have come in a big box. How it changed her life. She has a beautiful, healthy two-year-old daughter. She has been able to maintain herself. She lives with someone who cares for her. And today, as we speak, she is starting college. She has the future ahead of her. She's able to work legally, get a driver's license, have a bank account, have a social security card. I can't put into words the difference her life has become. And I cannot wait to look forward five years from now and see what she's accomplished. So go out, find the victims. If you see them, don't stop till you get them the help like she did. It took us all five years, but it was worth it. Tune again next week. And thank you for listening. This is Dottie for Trafficked on Here Women Talk Radio and Zeus Network. <laughs>